Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival in Logan, Utah, featuring opera, Broadway, and concerts like the Pianist, the International Opera Competition, and Verdi's Requiem, July 11th through August 2nd. More info at utahfestival.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, is preparing a ruling to roll back net neutrality rules enacted under President Obama to in part spur innovation and investment. President Obama demanded the, the FCC reclassify the Internet as a public utility under Title II of the Telecommunications Act, and he wanted uh, rules to ensure that neither the cable company nor the phone company would be able to act as a gatekeeper, restricting what you can do or see online. And we want to know what you think. Should we prioritize an open Internet? And what does that mean for you? Would loosening of the rules lead to some customers getting stuck in a slow lane or blocking some of the content? Should Internet service providers be thought of and regulated like utilities. We're going to talk about this with uh, Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan, who joins us. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And uh, Jason Williams from FOZ Technology Solutions, uh, also, I think, in Logan. That's right. Uh, It's good to be here. uh, Thanks for coming in. Appreciate you. Uh, Let's see. uh, Jason Williams, you are uh, still over at KVNU. That's right. And uh, Jonathan Choate used to be. I used to be, yes. Yeah. I'm now retired. So our, it makes me feel old when I say that. <laughs> so our, our friends at, at uh, Cave and you, we're happy to have you on the public radio side, at least for this uh, this hour. Uh, Jonathan Joe, let me turn uh, to you. Some people may not be familiar with this term, net neutrality. I guess if you're if you're into it, you you've you know you've debated it for ten years. Uh, inter- net neutrality, open internet. What are we talking about? So net neutrality is the concept, and and that's one thing we have to make sure we understand. There's concept. And there's rule of, you know, there's the rules associated with it. And they're not necessarily the same thing because um, you can be for one and not the other uh, fairly easily. So net neutrality is a concept that the, the packets that go out on the Internet are neutral, whether who the destination is and who the source is and what the content of the packet is. Is, is neutral. There's no way to differentiate. There's no way to say one packet is more important than another. There's no way to say, well, because it comes from this place versus going to this place, I'm going to give it more priority. Everything that goes out gets the same priority. It's neutral. So everything on the network is neutral. That's the basic concept for net neutrality. Um, and I, it sounds really good. Um, from a technology perspective, I have, I have problems with it because one of the things uh, that I am looking for as somebody who tries to optimize networks is I really want the ability to optimize certain packets over others because some of them are more important than others. Not because they come from a person, but because of the nature of a packet. If I am in a Skype call and I've got, you know, I have audio and video going back and forth and there's a time element to the longer that packet takes to travel, the less quality of a connection I have, more lag, uh, that's important that my packet be delivered in a timely manner. Now, at the same time, there are certain other things that it really doesn't matter. The packet can arrive at a much slower time, and the end user, there's no difference. Take, for instance, uh, running an online backup. I'm backing up the contents of my hard drive. It really doesn't matter that latency, the lag time associated with it. All I really care about then is the total throughput rather than the latency. So if I had the ability to to prioritize packets for certain types of traffic, that is a benefit to an an end user. And my concern with the concept of net neutrality is is when we try to write rules for it, we get rid of the ability to provide optimal services for people in trying to protect them from something that hasn't really happened. Mm. You can see what my position is on that. Unintended consequences. (laughs) Okay. So Jason uh, Williams, did did Jonathan do a good job, at least in the defining what net neutrality is? It's a a perfect definition of the the concept of net neutrality. Okay. So uh, part of why this is so high stakes to a lot of people, and you see see people marching on this, you know, you you might say, well... For more than a decade now. Yes. You might say, well, I use total geeks, but, you know, it's uh, people... Yeah, we are. We're okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, banners and such. Uh, I think one of the reasons, Jason, that this is so important to a lot of people is that the Internet has been seen as uh, a, a 
democratic institution, a leveling institution. Everybody gets to participate. It's very important that everybody be able to participate. Sure. And it's become uh, an economic factor as well. Uh, it's hard these days to uh, uh, get an education or, uh, you know, complete uh, your, your requirements at a job without some sort of internet and broadband access. And so as that has become more important and people have become more aware of the importance of access to broadband, I think that's what's raising awareness of the potential and uh, history, actually, of Internet service providers tiering uh, the speeds on their services and uh, thus the concern over a neutral net. And it's become, uh, I guess, a necessity, right? You, If you want access to information, even, as you mentioned, schooling more and more. Uh, many other things you you need uh, at least good access, basic access to the internet. So uh, therefore, one of the paradigms here is that we should regulate internet service providers like public utilities, just like the you know the the, the power company. Sure, Do you uh, agree a, with that. A good way to, to conceptualize the uh, as Jonathan pointed out, a, an important distinction between the concept of net neutrality and then the debate is over the rulemaking process, or should there be rules in general? Uh, and it does seem somewhat uh, ironic to uh, pass a law to say uh, we will not have a regulated internet; we'll have an open and free internet. But uh, the reason. Uh, many feel, myself included, that that is an important thing to do. Uh, we have, again, a history. Uh, we, we know that Internet service providers uh, in the early 2000s, uh, before they were caught doing it, were partnering with certain streaming services, for example, audio and video streaming services, and their partners uh, would see a certain type of speed. It would function very well for users, whereas those who hadn't partnered with the Internet service providers might see a little more buffering, uh, pausing in the video stream and things like that. Uh, and the idea behind this being that, similar to the debates we had in the 20th century over uh, Airlines and, and train services, the idea of a common carrier. It was so important to industry, to the economy at large, that uh, it became evident that cer certain rules needed to be made to say if a person can afford the price of a plane ticket, uh, then you have to you know, randomly assign seats, no assigning seats based on their profession or their race or things like that. So it's a similar concept to those debates from the nineteen mid-20th mid century. Hmm. I'm wondering, Jonathan, I'm, I'm just flashing under J Jason used the airline uh, and I'm flashing on United and overbooking. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there's an analogy here, but... Uh. I, I think there is, but at the same time... So we have the we have a few instances in the past of where... Uh, I think the biggest one that people might be aware of is Comcast and Netflix. Sure. I think that's about the only one that ever really rose to where the public was aware of it. Sure. And if you're a Comcast subscriber, you're Netflix was the quality was going down and down and down. And this was earlier, you know, internet speeds were slower at the time. Um, you know, it's, they've gone up drastically since then, even though it's only been about 10 years. Um, and what was happening is, is really there was a negotiation in the background. Comcast wanted to charge Netflix more because at the time, and I don't know if you remember this, at the time, there were periods of time in the day where in the United States, Netflix was more than half of all traffic not like half of streaming traffic tra all half traffic. of all internet traffic was netflix and because of that comcast who's the line provider says look we are handling a serious load from you if you want us to be able to provide this in a good way we need to charge more and what happened is is there's negotiations back and forth and really what happens is is what's happened in all of these major providers rather that they, they they moved and Netflix is now housing a large portion of their stuff inside Comcast network. So it's not going over the bridges between one provider and another. And that's the way almost every major, pro, you know, Google has this. Any, anybody that has presence worldwide, they host themselves in multiple locations on multiple networks so that they're not trying to go through all the interconnects where slowdowns happen. I and think. so that was, that was the market-based resolution to the problem. And it went away all by itself, with no government intervention. 
and that's a good distinction to make between uh, Jonathan and I. I think at, th- at that point in in what you're saying, uh, Jonathan and I both agree. We've debated this many times <laughs> between uh, ourselves. Uh, Jonathan and I agree that a non-neutral net is a problem. We agree that uh, internet service providers blocking or or severing certain bandwidth to certain uh, services or, or blocking is a certain things altogether, yeah. which has happened in rare instances. Sure, and so we agree those things shouldn't happen. What Jonathan and I disagree on, and what the majority of uh, both sides of the net neutrality debate disagree on, is what will stop internet service providers from doing that. And so, uh, using the two of us as an example, uh, I believe that there needs to be a rule, uh, most likely through the FCC or or uh, congressional action. Uh, that that says uh, it is illegal for you to do this. Jonathan, uh, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but you believe that there are market forces at play that would check this right. same thing. But we uh, both agree on the concerns yeah. at, cent- at the center of this. The con- and, and one of the, th- the reasons I have the concern for doing it as a rule, I can throw out instances where we, we, we think we have a good reason to regulate something. And it turns out to not necessarily be good in the long run. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a few instances where that's not the case in my own head. But so I, so what we have is, is we're trying to do what we perceive is the right thing. And we think we have justification for why we have it. But again, so we make this rule that says we can't. It's illegal for you to do this. All right. First, how do you enforce it? Now you create an enforcement arm. What are the costs associated with that? If you look on your internet bill, you have an internet bill. If you look on your phone bill, you have all of those little surcharges and taxes and things. Those are associated with them being in common carrier status. All of those things are tacked on by the government. You don't get that on your internet. As soon as you go common carrier, those are going to be added onto your bill, which is going to make it more expensive for everybody and also makes it more expensive for the carrier to meet the appropriate regulation. And with that, that becomes the stepping stone. I mean, we, the internet was built as being open and free. When, when, when it moved from being a DARPA project for military bases and became this open thing that it is today, we got here without that. My concern is, is that we're going to end up breaking it by trying to save what we have. And one of the problems we have there is to say, well, we don't want it to change. But if we said that when we were having this debate in 2000 or two, you know, the early 2000s, we, we want it to change. We want it to continue to evolve. The more regulatory regulatory burden we put on there, the harder it is for new entrants to come in. I mean, I live in the hills in Wellsville, and I have I have more than one choice for internet in the middle of nowhere. I don't have Comcast, but I have multiple regional providers. I have cell coverage in 4G LTE. I have all of these things that are available to me, even as rural as I am. If I don't like one, I'll change. If I really don't like any of the options out there, and I realize this is not something that everybody could do, I'll make my own ISP. Because the bar for entry is low, because there's very, very little regulatory burden associated with it. The more regulatory burden we put on there, the harder it is to bring new entrants into a market, and the harder it is for market forces to be able to solve these problems. Then we get a regulatory, well, we have to solve the problem by dictate, and I don't trust these people to even understand the nature of the problem, let alone a solution. I think the, the, uh, the, the counter to that, though, is that if you are not going to trust a simple set of rules regulating, much again like we, we had to do with uh, airlines and train services in this country, uh, if you don't put your faith in those rules, you're literally putting your faith in the companies with nothing more than a profit concern for your access to what has now become sort of a backbone of commerce uh, and and uh, life. And so uh, there is a, sort of a philosophical uh, issue behind this for many people. But I think the, the practicality of all of this, uh, there is not competition. Uh, I don't agree that it's a regulatory burden that stopped competition. It's very expensive to build networks. Uh, it is very expensive to be a broadband provider. That's uh, physical uh, nature of the service itself. That isn't going to change until we have a different method of delivery, which we will one day. Well, and that's uh, the point. It <laughs> changes so rapidly sure. that rules will make it harder to adopt those new technologies, not easier. 
I don't think we've seen that through the history of, of the evolution of the internet. In fact, I would say, you know, it, it's, it's empirical. We have not seen a regulatory burden holding that back, nor would net neutrality really affect that specifically. Uh, I think the reality that we have to face is that most people only have two or three choices. Uh, and again, I keep going back to, you know, the comparison with the airlines. We're, we're facing this problem again with the airlines. There has been so much merging. Uh, that, you know, we, we don't have the airlines to choose from for, for flights that we did 20, but, 30 years but ago. also remember, they are in common carrier status. Sure. So we're talking about what's happening after they have become common carrier, and we still have problems. But the common them. carrier status did not cause right. the consolidation of airlines. The, Profit concerns. Well, losses. <laughs> well, avoid, yeah, avoiding you, losses. You know, uh, well, companies going <laughs> bankrupt and having to be bought out by another company because they could not be profitable. They were losing money, but not hand because and fist. of a le- regulatory well, burden. Only because partially, it much because like of it. the internet, it is an expensive thing it, to do to run an airline. The average Joe cannot find the capital to become an airline or a broadband provider. Well, and that's not changing, probably. But let me day. let me have uh, Jonathan one more point, and then sure. uh, I want to go to this the idea of rural. So so finish your point. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay. So the the issue is it's but the bar of entry for a, a local broadband provider is way lower. Yes, I know we're not going to build our own train tracks. We're not going to build our own highways. Although the, we should. Uh, yeah, I'm actually all <laughs> for privatizing some of that. Train track. <laughs> but in, in airports have to go through certain hubs. There's only so much physical space. There's a the, the bar of entry to, you know, if I'm in Wellsville, which I am, I'm in Wellsville, and I don't like any of my options. It's not a big bar of entry to stick up a big antenna and license to bring in from a backbone carrier my own line and start sharing it. That bar of entry is is small enough that one or two people can do that versus having to have millions and billions of infrastructure for things like uh, railroads, uh, you know, et cetera. There's physical limitations to that, and I understand the concept of the common carrier there. I think there were potentially other ways to do it, but I don't necessarily disagree with that as being a, an appropriate solution to that. I don't think where we're at with internet, we're actually going to solve any problems. All I think we're going to do is create new ones that are unforeseen now. And the the issue there is we, when we've seen a couple of these instances happen, but this is all still theory. This is a solution seeking a problem. Mm. We've seen we know, we know we, they filter we have, traffic. Well, yes, we do. But has any is, are people having problems with it? Is this actually creating an end user issue? that we're, we would actually be solving. We have a few instances of it that resolved themselves generally. Um, and what happens when we try to do something that's beneficial and the rules, because they're blanket rules written by people who generally don't understand the minute technical details of how networks function, suddenly make it so we can't do things that are beneficial without breaking the rules. These issues didn't resolve themselves, though. The FCC actually stopped them. And now what's the center of the debate now is the new FCC, under a new administration, is thinking of undoing the previous FCC's rules. And let me, uh, I'm going to ask both of you what, uh, we're in a comment period, right? So I'll ask you what your comment would be uh, to the FCC. I want to follow up before we go to break, uh, Jonathan, you you talked about uh, that you have an array of options um, in Wellsville, and Wellsville is rural-ish. It's rural-ish. But, I, but I'm, I'm wondering about uh, people in really rural areas <laughs> who maybe don't have a lot of options, and therefore your competition argument maybe apply a little less in some of those areas. Well, I, I, there's two parts to that. One, wh- it's, it's a known quantity. Anybody who's moving out to an off-grid area in the middle of nowhere, you know that beforehand. There are technological limitations for the delivery of services at high speed. There are still, if you have, if you have electricity and you can see the sky, you have options. There's HughesNet. There's a, there's a couple of various satellite-based providers. It's a, compared to a nice inner city broadband, it's terrible, but it's a connection. But that's, some, that's a choice somebody is making. Um, I am personally looking at moving off grid. I'm looking at a piece of property right now, and and I'm in IT. So I, it's a factor that I have to put in there. It's a known quantity. I have to stay within a certain range because data speeds in many cases are based on distance, and the cost for laying these lines is massive. If we start to do something like we did with telephones, where we say, well, we have to provide it to everybody, 
Then we're going to see those big fees and surcharges come on and somebody else is subsidizing somebody else's choice to move into an area that is poorly served. It's not, uh, it's not a factor of, uh, you know, it, it's not a matter of survival. Yes, it's absolutely part of the economic part now. It, it's the reality that you, there's very little economic activity that happens without some internet around it. But it's also a, a factor that we all know and make a choice based on. So I'm, I'm curious to follow up. So you're considering off-grid? <laughs> Which surprises me. I, I, I know you, uh, at least uh, my perception of you as a person, is very plugged in. I am, um, which so, is why so off, off, how, I'm how planning a large solar array, and I have this big antenna with a 30-mile range, which will go up on this peak of a hill that's on the piece of property, and is going to point into somebody who has good internet. So I will have the fastest off-grid internet in the planet, but... <laughs> point, point to a provider, not, not somebody's backyard, I'm guessing, is what you're... Yeah, it points to somebody okay. where I can put a connection in and then send okay. it to myself. Okay, gotcha. So, uh, so you'll still be in, in, that way, in that way. In that way, you'll still be connected Again, to information. Yeah, I'll, I will yeah. be. I'll have faster internet than I do in my current house in Wellsville. Okay. Um, but those are factors that I have to put into there. I would never expect somebody to say, "Well, look, I decided to live way out here. Government, you have to make them run a line to me, even at a massive loss, mm-hmm. which is what it would be." It would cost thousands and thousands of dollars to run that wire to my house, and I'm paying them fifty bucks a month. That's not an, that's not a fair trade. Mm-hmm. So, Jason, uh, Jonathan wouldn't say that to government, but there, you know, there are people um, who are saying we ought to do that as a public good. You know, very sure. rural areas where we can run a line or or you know help provide uh, some some service in very rural areas. Not everyone can put up a tower like. Well, they John can. Going to. Actually, well, well, they well, can. It's that easy. <laughs> I, met, I, and I, I misspoke. Not everyone is going to or have the well, resources but, to work. But know. that's the point. And I, and I apologize. I'm moving and I'm jumping in here. It's so easy. And the technology has advanced to the point where these things are a few hundred dollars. It's not like this is a massive investment. I mean, literally, the equipment to go 30 miles is less than $500 and will take me a few hours to put up. Granted, I'm a technology specialist, but there's lots of us out there. Mm-hmm. So, Jason, the, you know, one of the key arguments between the two of you and the, this ongoing uh, specifically applied to this debate, but probably applies to other debates that uh, you gentlemen have, is the role of government, right? Where, to where some extent. To, you know. You know, how, how much should, should government step in? So applied to this issue and specifically to this uh, issue of uh, people in very rural areas— does government have a role? Is what should the role of government? I think be? there is absolutely a role, and and I think it comes down to, and it is it is the archetype of of that debate really between uh, uh, two people like Jonathan and I have two very different political walks of life, uh, despite that friends for years. Uh, but uh, you can get along, by the way. This is an example. We're proof of it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it does come down to that that very basic debate: the role of government in some of this, and. And I think, uh, you know, the, the rural broadband access issue is a good example. Uh, without some sort of subsidization, without some sort of uh, carrot and stick mechanism, most broadband providers have, they, well, all broadband providers have no profit motivation, no profit-based motivation to extend their networks out to some of these rural schools. To some, And so we've seen over the last 10 years a, a, a very successful program in the United States, both at the state, Utah has a program like this, uh, the federal government has a program, a granting program, and the idea behind this is you, using taxpayer dollars, you incentivize uh, these private companies to build their networks out so that rural schools have broadband access, so that rural communities uh, can, can plug in, can connect, and not be sort of left out as things change as quickly as they have uh, economically. And so I think uh, just like many other things, there is a role government can play there. But again, with net neutrality, it comes down to a, a basic rule again of uh, an ironic move of passing. In fact, I've, I've told Jonathan this many times when we've debated this personally, I would support a net neutrality rule that said, this is the one rule and there shall be no more. <laughs> and, you know, if I trusted that they would actually not use the power that gave they had to create the rule to change it later, I would agree with that. You know, I just don't believe they can control themselves. That's another good way to conceptualize the two mindsets on this issue. Because so for Jonathan, <clears throat> there is uh, the the 
concern, I think a, a legitimate concern, that once you open the can of worms of passing a rule or a regulation affecting the Internet, it becomes a congressional free-for-all, and we've seen that in the past, and it can get messy. Uh, and then you have on the other side people like me that uh, think if we leave this in the hands of the corporations that are continuously consolidating uh, and, and one day will have uh, so much control over economic activity through their control of these broadband networks, uh, I have a hard time placing faith in those corporations without some sort of rule set. And and I think those are the two basic mindsets on this. And, and that, I, think, I think that really is. <clears throat> that, I mean, it comes down to who you're going to trust more. And it's, and it's not, in my opinion, a matter of trusting the corporations. I don't. I trust Comcast as far as I can throw them, even though they're the best service in Cash Valley right now, in my opinion. Um, I don't trust them. But what I do trust them to do is to react to customers who are upset or to somebody else providing a better service that people are going to want to go to. I think with the rural I, question, though, I think that's an example of, of when they didn't already react well, to – there was demand. There, there was demand, but was there demand to justify the cost? No, and, and so they didn't build uh, right, out. But they didn't at that time. I mean, Cash Valley has been that situation where Salt Lake got it first and then Ogden or Provo, and we got it fifth or sixth down the line. But we did get it, often with hand-me-down equipment. Yes, we're behind the line, but guess what? We're a, t we're a much smaller market, although we're bigger now. So now Logan gets it, but Wellsville and Hiram and Smithfield don't get it yet. But they do get it in the long run. But they don't there get was it. a subsidy mechanism at play and, there as well and there through was, the state. There was, but they didn't take control of it. They incentivized going into areas that weren't profitable yet, saying, it will be profitable. It will be necessary. We're just going to kind of bump up that timeline by providing you something that helps to make it profitable. For listeners Let's, not uh, familiar with this, it yeah. was a tax cut okay. here in yeah. Utah. The All legislature right. said, big tax cut if you'll build your network out. Okay. let's. Uh, we need to take a break. Let's take a break. When I come back, I uh, want to kind of finalize uh, this area of our discussion and uh, get uh, your what your comment, official comment would be to the FCC. What uh, rules do you think, or lack of rules, rolling back of rules uh, should be from uh, Jonathan and, and Jason. Then I want to move into a, a somewhat related but different uh, discussion. We, we're talking about the the infrastructure to get information to us. I want to start talking about the information and this explosion of our information age, the age of fake news, and, and we're all swimming in more information than our ancestors ever had uh, access to in a lifetime. Or perhaps drowning. Or drowning. <laughs> and uh, how do we navigate that? I know both of you gentlemen are avid consumers of news and information. I want to, especially since there's a bit of a political divide here, and, and how do we talk across that? Uh, we'll transition into that discussion. I also would love to hear from someone. We've been talking about access to information in rural areas. I want to hear from somebody. Uh, what you know? What's your provider like? What's your experience been? Um, are you off the grid? Is uh, Jonathan's uh, contemplating doing? And uh, what's that experience like? You can call us at 800-826-1495, toll free 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, and on Twitter we're at upraccess. More following this break. This is Brian Erickson in Bringing More to Life. All caregivers are not created equal. Give yourself time to learn this new role. Observe and ask for advice from peers who also face the challenge of parenting parents. Worry less about doing it right and focus more on showing you care. Remember often your presence is enough. Engage and appreciate care facility staff. They know your parents' needs. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about open internet, net neutrality. We're going to make a transition in this segment to talking about the information itself, not how we get it. 
Uh, but we want to uh, uh, finalize that part of our discussion, and uh, you can uh, join this uh, discussion uh, any way that you would like on any of these topics at 800-826-1495, uh, toll-free 800-826-1495. I'm especially interested in talking with someone in a very rural area, um, perhaps off the grid or having difficulty accessing the information, uh, joining the world of today, or perhaps you'll tell me uh, no problem at all. Uh, and uh, what would you say about net neutrality? 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, gentlemen, uh, you both made an allusion, kind of a joint allusion, to the fact that uh, technology changes very rapidly. And uh, right now we're getting all of our information. The infrastructure goes through our cable company or through the phone company. But that might change. So, uh, starting with you, Jonathan, what, where do you think that might go? Well, we there are, there's backbones, there's infrastructure laid, there's dark fiber as it's known, and that has nothing to do with, just means there's no fiber optic light going through it. It's waiting. There's infrastructure that's been built out in the country to grow that network. That's there, and that's not really going to change. Fiber is the technology that will be with us for another generation. There's nothing on the horizon other than faster adaptations of the same stuff, better switching equipment. So our backbone, the link from one state to another, one city to another, that's going to stay. What really changes is the delivery method in what is called the last mile. It doesn't have to be a mile, but it's going from that fiber connection to get to the person. Now, there are some people, we had the Utopia Project a number of years ago, or iProvo, we had Google, Google Fiber. We have these things where municipalities or organizations have attempted to bring that fiber link directly to the home to provide what is amazing access because those fiber, the fiber line can be, the switching equipment and stuff can be upgraded as those technology improves without changing the wire. Kind of like that same wire you get your cable on. It's the same wire we've been using for 30 years but the switching equipment, the stuff like that has gotten better, and the amount of data we transfer over it is far greater than it used to be. So really what it's coming down to is there's new technologies coming out. There's improvements. Wireless has made leaps and bounds in the last 10 years to where it was, you know, it was a, it was a novelty, um, and you could download a picture in 60 seconds on your phone over, you know, the old, old, what was it? It's called... Uh, uh, GPRS, yeah. General Purpose Radio Signal. You could get internet over it, but it was yeah, you could practically talk as fast as the data came over. You could used just say a, the zeros and ones. Used to be a selling point. <laughs> Remember that with phones? Yeah, new GPRS service. Yeah, and so <laughs> compared to where we at now with you know 4G LTE and we're getting 20 and 30 megabits connection on your phone, it changes rapidly, and there is no there is no reason to think that it will not continue to adapt rapidly. Which, again, and I, I hate to go back because I know we're going forward. It's one of the reasons I really hate to put rules in place because when that new technology comes, how do they fit into the existing rules that are written as a one-size-fits-all? Mm. Which you, you, there's always unintended consequences. As careful as you are, there's always unintended consequences for, well, how does this new thing fit into the old? And it allows entrenchment of, well, Comcast has a massive investment in cable. What happens when the new thing comes out that isn't cable? Can those rules be used by a company to entrench their power and not let the new competitor come in? So, Jason, what uh, would you, you know, put on your future-looking glasses? Uh, what will that technology, what might it look like? I think, you know, there's a huge oversimplification of the technology, but it looks something like uh, maybe <laughs> floating wireless access points I, 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 you know it's so science Google fiction. actually did that it's a real thing yes they're yeah. actually developing these Google uh, and and I this technology is still amazing to me uh, but it's now old at least five years old uh, you have uh, wireless access points capable of, of covering 500 square miles they're not cheap they require a lot of power and so far no one's been able to make one work really well but eventually they will and so I, I think the future you're looking at uh, as Jonathan said sort of a fiber-based backbone at least for a generation but the new way that above ground we will interact with the internet will I, I think continually move in a wireless direction 
and uh, the technology is advancing so much. Uh, you know, Jonathan and I can both speak a little bit about this uh, from our own experience, but, you know, the death of the desktop PC, I think, is the best example of this evolution and how quickly it happens. Desktop PC sales just in the last four to five years have bottomed out. One of the reasons for that is wireless, the tablet, the phone, uh, the the uh, cheap price of the average laptop, and us all getting so accustomed to mobility, to not being tied to a desk. And, and on top of that's that, that's not stopping. Yeah, and on top of that, <laughs> the power and quality sure. of the mobile devices have gone up so much that you're not. It's not necessary to have the big brick that's in your in your you know in a in an office anymore. Sure, because you can accomplish the same things on these light mobile devices. Mm. And I think that trend will will Unless you're a gamer, then I hate to say it, you're still right. you're, Yeah, you're that, there, there will always be specific <laughs> uses. That's the, that's the that's the frontier, but also the frontier of innovation, right? So gaming. Yeah, well ga- sure. you, you'd mm. be you would be surprised at how much entertainment has driven um, you know, whether it be games or other forms of entertainment has driven these technology innovations. Mm-hmm. Um, that then sure. trickle down and become part of our everyday life. Yeah, so. I was just I was just thinking the way things have moved. Um, the other day, I uh, I received a, a download, upload download from from fellow f- for a program here. Two point three gigs, I believe, was mm. the, the 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 total length of the file, and I believe two point three or something gigs was was my memory in my first computer. Sure. I would be um, actually surprised if you had that much computer back in the back in the day. <laughs> my, so my first one forward. had 10 yeah. meg. <laughs> and, yeah. and we all remember the days of America Online, you know, mid 90s when you would watch that 2 megabyte file download for what 20 minutes, 30 yeah. minutes. Someone would pick up the phone in your house and start the My whole thing my over. very first broadband <laughs> in Cash Valley uh, Cash Valley Airnet is what it was called. It had a Sun Microsystems, if oh, you remember yeah. them. 36 megabits a second at the time, which was superb, mm-hmm. groundbreaking. And now my phone does 100 times that mm-hmm. on my phone inside a building. I don't need a four-foot antenna, which is what I had. It wasn't a $200 a month. So the, the accessibility is is changing and the speeds are changing so much that the content is growing with it because we can it's become so cheap to throw content out that why not Mm. there's a concern along these lines too and i don't remember the author's name it's a book written in the 70s uh called future shock and he talks about uh how we adapt quickly and how technology is going to have this exponential speed uh he's proven to be somewhat prophetic in that most people don't don't even think about this but the smartphone that Jonathan just described and the speeds that you can now uh, enjoy on a smartphone the smartphone itself did not really gain mass popularity until about 2008 2009 and that is not that long ago and yet very few people can picture a world without one already uh, Alvin Toffler. By the way. I, I looked oh, it up. It was it was it was bugging me, and I that was a very very influential book. Uh, so we're we're going to move on to another uh, subject. But before we do that, I want to get in this uh, comment from Steve, um, who uh, well, I'll just uh, let his comment speak for itself, and then let you gentlemen comment on his comment. Steve says, "I've only heard the last few minutes of this discussion, but I have to take great exception to what I've heard. Net neutrality is in no way a congressional matter; it's a con- regulatory matter." There is no greater chance of a quote-unquote congressional free-for-all regarding the Internet than there is of a congressional free-for-all regarding the day-to-day operations of electric utilities. Can't happen. Just like electric utilities, Internet providers have a virtual monopoly in the area they serve, and unregulated, they will extort both content providers and household consumers. In a monopoly situation, the only thing to prevent such extortion is regulation. This is common sense, and ISPs are sensibly regulated in all other first world countries, which may have something to do with the fact that American Internet service is among the slowest in the world. Congress is not and will not be involved in this. A congressional free-for-all is just fantasy without competition, which we do not have in this industry sector. Regulation is the only defense against corporate extortion. That's uh, Steve. Let me go first to Jason with this, and then Jonathan. Actually, I agree with everything he said, but I will 
side with Jonathan on one part of this. There is a risk of a congressional free-for-all. And I think it's as much as I would like net, simple net neutrality rules in place to make sure that the Internet is not being defined solely by profit motives of these large providers, I, th- I would also like to see on the back end of that, a check, because I do think there is potential for, uh, once you open the can of worms, Congress likes to meddle and they like to pass. We've seen this on everything from billboard signs on the freeway uh, to uh, you know the volume of advertisement we can see on TV. Uh, not saying either of those uh, regulations are evil. I'm just saying I think that there will be in the future incentive for congressional action. Right now, this is all happening inside the FCC. Right. Well, and, and a lot of people are arguing that the FCC can't act until Congress gives them the power. That is sort of a sub debate yeah, of this that's, debate. That's a right? sub debate of does the FCC have the right to regulate this with the with the without the legislation approval. that's passed giving them the ability so unless congress gives fcc the 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 ability to do it the power to do it then there are many arguments that they can't do it because it, they're not empowered to do so sure. so that does put it under congress's control and again they name an aspect of life that has not been affected by Congress at some point, at some level, and I would be surprised. I think it is enough of a risk that even those of us who very much support net neutrality rules, uh, we we should still be vigilant that this does not become... Uh, you know, whatever the latest trend at the congressional level is, whatever the most popular thing is, whoever the whichever party has the majority, uh, I think we should also have some rules to check against that. So, John, Jonathan, I want to uh, uh, talk about the substance of uh, Steve's argument. Let me just read the last sentence. It says, without competition, which we do not have in this industry sector, regulation is the only defense against corporate extortion. So his argument is we don't have competition in this sector. And so See, and, and that's good. where that's where I take issue to the statement is, yes, there are areas where we don't have great competition, but most areas have multiple providers. Uh, the majority of people in the United States have four or more Internet providers available to them that are considered broadband, let alone other smaller things that aren't even on the horizon. Rather than saying we don't have competition, let's just accept that and let's regulate the market. Let's encourage competition rather than saying, all right, Comcast owns and they own it. It's theirs. They spent the money to put it in there to put the the coaxial networks that connect to our houses. Well, and CenturyLink or Quest, depending upon which iteration we're talking about, they own the telephone wires that are in there. So rather, so we do have some competition there. Technology will tend to sway one way or the other. DSL used to be the better technology. Now the coaxial is the better technology. Now wireless is coming in and doing other things. And guess what? Nobody's going to own those wireless infrastructures. But we have hundreds of companies throughout the United States that run and own these various backbones that are leasing stuff out. The interconnectivity of all of these various networks. There is no one giant monopoly. Yes, there are a few major providers, Comcast, Cox, AT&T, Verizon, who own large segments of markets because they put the money out to lay the lines. But let's not think that that is set in stone and that's the way it's going to be forever. These fiber backbones are less than 20 years old, most of them. It does not take that long to adapt and change to new technologies and to meet demands that are out there. Let's encourage competition rather than give in and say we can't have it and therefore we're going to regulate it. Because I think competition is how we solve that. And we have a lot more than people think. Sometimes you only have one choice because it's the only logical choice. Because, well, this is the best one. So I feel like I only have one choice. But the reality is, is there. There are choices out there, even in rural Cache Valley, even in other parts of rural Utah. And if not, when the demand is there, it will come. It's not instant. But guess what? Government's not instant to react either. We think we create this regulation. We're solving the problem. No, we're putting a body in that's going to try to do something to solve the problem. It may or may not actually happen. And there's the, there's the faith issue of who we, who we think can actually react faster. But the rule doesn't fix the problem. The rule just tries to say, we're going to define the problem, and here's some things that might fix it. It, Somebody still has to lay the wire. Mm -hmm. So unless we nationalize it, it's still going to be companies running that wire. All we're doing is playing around with incentives. So, Jason, uh, to, you, to you, your reaction to uh, Steve's comment, uh, so specifically the competition, you, you, uh, is, there, is there sufficient competition and do we need regulation? Not at all. Um, the competition that, uh, that you'll hear um, is out there. 
uh, really doesn't exist. In fact, uh, the national broadband census done by a, a conglomerate of, of organizations, Google was involved, Electronic Front, Frontier Foundation, a, a lot of organizations pooled resources and uh, worked with states and the federal government collecting data. And uh, basically what they found is anywhere between, depending on your area, uh, nationwide, I guess would be the, the easiest statistic to throw out, about 80 to 85 percent of broadband services were owned by or associated with, in a key way, four companies. And so to me, that's not competition. Uh, and I think even more important along the lines of competition is the barrier of entry. I don't agree with Jonathan that it's a regulatory burden that causes a barrier of entry. It is very expensive to dig fiber lines, uh, to bury fiber lines. It is very expensive uh, to to have the equipment to run a, a broadband service, even just serving a, a, a small community. Uh, we've seen, in response to this, we've seen some experimentation with uh, municipal broadband. Jonathan mentioned Utopia and iProvo here in Utah. Uh, Box Elder is a great example. There was zero incentive for any broadband provider in Utah to build out their network in Box Elder. Uh, lawmakers attempted to uh, entice them to do so with a tax cut package. No takers. Uh, Box Elder, much of Box Elder County left just high and dry with broadband access. Uh, so the city, uh, working with uh, state lawmakers and, and others involved, decided to go the municipal broadband route. And the way that works is, uh, you know, you partner up with a provider or a network constructor. And, and there are a lot of players involved, a lot of moving pieces. Uh, but basically, taxpayer money subsidizes the construction of the network in theory, um, and it has worked well in some places, not so well in others. Uh, but the theory behind it is that then the subscription service from taxpayers uh, sort of repays uh, the, the municipal funds uh, over a period of time. And everything comes out in the wash and everyone now has broadband access where there was no private uh, market incentive for a broadband provider to build in the area. Uh, and that, I think, illustrates well the fact that, that competition isn't as pl at play in this arena as much as I think most of us are accustomed to when we think about competing influences. I, I think, uh, very briefly, John. Oh, go ahead. Go to break. I was just say, I think that's an excellent example, and I actually don't have a problem with what Box Elder did because it was done at the local level with their particular needs. Saying, you know, and because there are areas that are going to be underserved, and what they're really doing is, is they're, en they're entering into their own competition element. They're providing an alternative to that at the local level. Where I really see the problem is, is where we say, well, because it's justified for Box Elder County to do something, well, then we're totally justified to have Congress or the FCC do it on a nationwide level. Again, one size fits all never doesn't really fit anybody. I wouldn't support nationalization. Of and and that's, but that's the point is <laughs> there's a difference between enacting nationwide rules and reacting to various situations in certain rural localities, et cetera, and trying to do something at a municipal or county level to to fix a problem of being underserved in certain areas. I don't have a problem with that. I supported Utopia. But, and again, what they're doing is, is they're providing a physical line and then they're opening that up to competition for various people to feed in what's going to go in those lines. And that's very different than nationalization or highly regulated environments. I also support Utopia, but I realize you were talking about a specific project. Uh, it struck me you're, you're talking about anyway the, the uh, utah so, telecommunications yeah, right. something it's an acronym but i support the principle anyway um uh, let me before we go to a brief break we'll come back with a very brief last segment uh i'll give steve the final word on this congressional involvement uh i know you gentlemen would be tempted to jump in but I'll, I'll i'll just give steve this final word he's emailed back in net neutrality is not and has not been a congressional matter it's a matter of which has been litigated in the courts the fcc already has congressional approval to regulate the internet this is firmly established whether it can guard net neutrality the courts have decided is how that authority already granted to congress is exercised uh by the fcc the discussion is in the courts and beyond the purview of congress so i know you gentlemen may have disagreement with that. i want to go to a brief break and then we'll be back with our last segment we have an email uh, from nolan that we'll get to in this last segment programming on utah public radio is made possible in part by our members and utah festival in logan utah featuring opera broadway and concerts like the pianist the international opera competition and verdi's requiem july 11th through august 2nd more info at utahfestival.org
Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We're back with a very brief last segment, and uh, thanks for joining us for a discussion of net neutrality, open internet. And we have with us Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group and Jason Williams from uh, FOZ Technology Solutions. And uh, we are debating this issue uh, today along with you. And uh, we have this email from Nolan. Uh, who is in a rural area. I asked people to give their experience, and uh, Nolan has. Thank you, Nolan. He says, I work for a fixed wireless ISP. We provide Internet to rural areas with speeds from 5 to 50 megabytes per second, MBPS. Megabits. Megabits per second, thank you. It isn't inexpensive to purchase equipment to provide said speeds. If one were to get a registered piece of equipment with the FCC, you're looking at paying thousands of dollars to license the equipment, let alone purchase it. On a small scale or residential solution, situation rather, from point to point, you're still looking at paying somewhere between $250 to $600 just to purchase the equipment. And one would have to know how to set that up or pay someone to do so. There are downsides to having either the government or a company involved with the availability of high-speed broadband. However, at least with a company in charge, they will consistently try and improve and update their equipment as quickly as possible. On top of that, with having to be competitive, they will be offering the best speeds available. I've personally experienced the difference in usage and speeds available even within the past five years. Unfortunately, some of the areas we serve, we can't keep up with the speeds offered over the air versus a direct connection from fiber or even a coaxial line. However, I believe this is the trade-off of living in such areas. Currently, the government is subsidizing Internet to rural areas. I think that government should stay in that role and leave it at that. Internet may be a basic utility now, but the costs associated with making it a utility provided to, to everyone should be would be astronomical. So that's uh, Nolan uh, outlining several issues there. We just have about two minutes left, so one minute each, gentlemen, a response. Uh, okay, gentlemen. so these rural providers, these local wireless providers are an a, a superb stopgap in the between the uh, the urban high speed and you know old dial-ups etc these sprang up very quickly yes and and part of what by what anybody notice what one of the things that was the major cost was they had to license with the fcc there's some regulation issue although i actually agree with actual spectrum being licensed because that is an issue so the bar, it's not cheap. You're not doing it out of your back pocket, but it is, they can, they're quickly, they're responsive. Technology improvements are good. And if they're not good, guess what? Somebody else is going to come up and compete with them because that's been what's happened. There've been dozens of them that have come and been bought, been better, been good. And we have a decent, uh, that, that's what I have at my house right now. And it works. I'm able to accomplish what I need to do. It's not 300 megabit that I want, but guess what? I don't get everything I want. And a minute to you, uh, Jason, final word. I think, uh, honestly, the idea of competition is is pure fantasy here. Uh, the, the emailer says, you know, that with a profit motive involved, companies will, I, I believe it was phrased, have an incentive to keep their equipment up to date, to keep their speeds the best. Uh, we have actually have quite a history already with Internet service providers of doing exactly the opposite, simply because in many areas in the country, what are you going to do? Uh, to be honest with you, Many people don't have many choices, so they flip between three or four providers in a circular fashion every other year, uh, receiving service that, frankly, could be a lot better if there was actually competition. But again, as we've discussed, there are a lot of barriers there, and I don't think a regulatory burden is uh, the largest barrier at all. Uh, so again, it's maybe a cynical view. I don't think that's going to change. And for me, it's very important to make sure that we don't leave access to the internet, quality of broadband, or even the evolution of the internet to something defined solely by the profit motives of a large corporation. We'll leave it there. We're out of time, and we never to get to the information age and fake news. Maybe we'll do a, a program just on that with you, John. It needs at least discussion. an hour. Would be yeah. fun. <laughs> uh, but thank you uh, so much, Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan. Thanks. Thank you. And Jason Williams from uh, FOZ Technology Solutions in Logan. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. And the thing about T-ball is when one kid hits the ball, both teams chase it around the field which is hilarious, unless you're the coach. Join us for more true stories told live. This week, Fenway Park, Jerusalem, and the streets of Seattle. Stories of home. That's on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio.
statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST, Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.